Hi there, welcome to Friends of Brother Adam. My name is Dennis, I'll be your host today. Uh, we will be dispensing of our regular commercial that I do, um, and we'll be just hopping right into reading a book. Um, today we'll be continuing on with Splitting Hives and Rearing Queens, Growing Managing Your Small Apiary by Joseph E. Herbert. Um, copyright 2018. I would encourage you guys to pick up this book through Amazon. It is quite an awesome book. Um, today will probably not be a very long um, reading and, and uh, talk, um, so uh, we'll just jump right into it. Uh, we're going to be jumping past chapter 2, which is, talks about bee biology, and we'll jump into chapter 3, which is mechanics of splitting a hive. Alright, so it is best to start as simply as possible when learning something new and queen rearing is no exception. So let's start by using our knowledge of honeybee biology and behavior to look at the most rudimentary form of queen rearing, splitting a hive. You may think that splitting a hive is not queen rearing, so I want to emphasize this point by repeating it plainly. Splitting a hive is queen rearing. In fact, everything I teach you in this book will begin with splitting a hive. So don't skim over this part, it is far from irrelevant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Think about it. What do you do when you split a hive? You hopefully create a circumstance which both motivates and enables your bees to create a new queen, thus growing your apiary and increasing your hive count by one. It is that very definition of queen or that is the very definition of queen rearing. How can it be queen rearing if I don't graft any larvae? Well, here, there's the rub. Most people so closely associate grafting larvae with queen rearing that they come to believe that grafting larvae is queen rearing. In, in point of fact, it is only one part of queen rearing. Oh, it is definitely a very important part. In fact, unless you can graft larvae, you cannot practice selective breeding of your livestock. But as soon as you um, see grafting larvae is the only one part of queen rearing. Uh, nonetheless, splitting a hive is the most rudimentary form of queen rearing. It, and it is important for two reasons. Sorry. Um, it is important because of what it will teach you about rearing queens in general, and because you cannot do it for, or you can do it no matter how small of your apiary. Assume you have the smallest apiary possible, a single hive. Now, let's say the colony in that hive is a year old and occupies two deep bodies. Take one of those bodies, place it on a new bottom board, and give it a set of covers. Now, divide all the frames of that hive, make certain that each half gets an equal share of bees, capped honey, stored pollen, and brood. As a rule, the bees on the brood comb will be the younger nurse bees, while the bees on the honey and pollen comb will probably be the foragers. If you leave the bees on the frame as you divide them, bo um, both halves should get the kinds of bees they'll need. Well, 
Voila, you've just split a hive. It's literally doing what the name implies. And if all goes well in a few weeks, you'll have healthy hives instead of just one. And one brand new queen filling the comb with brood, if all goes well. That's quite a caveat, and one with consequences. In beekeeping vernacular, this process is called letting the split requeen itself. And I'd bet that you'd, if you'd done splits, this was what you did. Moreover, you probably experienced something close to a 50% failure rate. I certainly did, so don't take it personally, it's just math. It's what happens when you leave control to random chance, but with just a bit of knowledge, you can improve your success rate to something much closer to 100%. Let's consider why. First, we know that when nurse bees find themselves in a queenless hive, their instinct is to rear new queen if they can. Now, when we split a hive in the above example, we didn't pay attention to which half got the queen. We know that one half did, as long as we didn't inadvertently kill her and the half, the other half didn't. That second half is at the very least now queenless and therefore will, if it can, raise a new queen. On a side note, a very important side note that you should remember, if you inspect both halves in four days, you'll be able to tell which half has the queen because that half will have eggs. All of the eggs that were laid before the split will have hatched, but only the half with the queen will be able to replace them with new eggs. The half with no eggs is queenless. So we have mo motivated that half of the split to make a new queen if they can. All we need to worry about now is whether or not also enabled them to do so. So what did the do bees need to make a queen? Well, they need nurse bees, and those nurse bees need honey and pollen. Without pollen, they cannot produce royal jelly, which is critical to making a queen. Without honey, they can't trigger the queen's differentiation. Of course, we made sure that both halves got equal shares of the bees' pollen and honey so that those needs were met. But there is one more thing they absolutely must have to make a new queen. They need eggs. Okay, technically they need larvae, young larvae, ideally less than a day old. In a pinch, they could make a queen from larvae that is a bit older, but that would produce a substandard queen that would have to be replaced soon. And we want them back making honey as soon as possible. Besides, as long as they have eggs, this is all academic. And that is the reason new beekeepers experience failure rates of approximately 50% when splitting hives. Let me explain. When you split a hive, as long as you don't inadvertently kill her, one of the two halves still have the queen and the other half will be queenless. Likewise, both halves will either have eggs in their brood or they won't. And this is the definition of the 50-50 chance. Half that has the queen will still be a healthy hive because even if they have no eggs in their brood, the queen will lay, just lay more. The queenless half will survive or fail depending on whether it has eggs. If there are eggs in its brood, the bees will make a new queen. If they have no eggs, they will fail. If you left it to random chance, there's about a 50-50 possibility that the queenless half has eggs and that the that fully explains the 50 
100% failure rate. For the purposes, for our purposes and for simplicity's sake, let's assume that you didn't kill the queen, but you might note that even if you did inadvertently kill a queen, at least one of the two halves would have eggs and therefore recover. This means that you would still expect no more than a 50% failure rate. But if, instead of relying on chance when dividing the brood, you take a moment to ensure that both halves of the split get some eggs, that simple step will make the difference between a near 100% success rate or a near 50% failure rate. When doing a split, if you find that... Whoa, and I lost my place. <laughs> um, yeah. That one step will make the difference between near 100% success rate and the near 50% failure rate. I just said that. Then doing a split, if you find that the... All the eggs in that hive are on a single frame of brood. Wait a day or two until you find eggs on more than one frame and then try again. <coughs> Excuse me. It is nearly, or it is certainly a lot easier than finding the queen and making sure she goes into the box without the eggs. As a final word about eggs, there's there's one helpful hint. A brood comb gets very dark because every honeybee that develops in each of those cells molts several times before emerging, and all of that sloughed-off tissue is left behind and pressed into the cell walls. This is why when you put an old comb into a solar wax melter, even after all the wax has been rendered away, you will still find what looks like black comb in the frame that just... Sorry, the page isn't flipping here. Just won't melt. It's not wax. Anyways, dark brood comb makes spotting eggs easier by providing a very stark, contrasting background. And since any hive you've likely split will be a mature, established hive, this should work to your favor. The hive's brood comb should already be a nice, nice and dark. With that one trick for spotting eggs and that little tidbit of knowledge put in the proper context, you will now be able to split hives with something closer to a 100% success rate rather than a 50% failure rate. Still, if you want to manage your apiary to the fullest extent possible, or if you want to practice selective breeding at all, you will need to graft some larvae. Grafting larvae. Learning to graft larvae is probably the most dreaded part of learning to rear queens, for the most part anyways. Okay, to be fair, many also dread having to find their queen, but I don't count that. Oh, to be sure, there are some queen-rearing methods that hinge upon finding and isolating the queen. Rearing methods that, no, as it were, but it was, or but as... We just saw that in the previous example, finding the queen isn't actually necessary to rear queens. So then if grafting isn't specifically so then if grafting isn't specifically necessary, why should anyone bother to learn how? We don't bother finding the queen, so why do we bother with grafting larvae? Well, for a couple of reasons. Eventually, if you keep bees long enough, you're going to need that one hive that just won't let you do an inspection. Eventually, you're going to have to get to the hive 
or get a hive that seems to come down with nosema at every opportunity. Eventually you will need to take proactive measures to manage heritable traits of your bee stock and then it will be a bit late to start climbing the learning curve. But even if that weren't true, even if you never needed to practice selective breeding, the point of keeping bees is to get honey. Whether or not you have two hives, five hives, or more, if you want to split them, you will want to first rear new queens in a group. That way, the other queens can continue to produce honey while the other one works to make new queens for all of them. By rearing queens in a group, you maximize the downtime of the other hives and maximize the productivity of your apiary as a whole. So since this is probably part of queen rearing, you're most apprehensive about, let's start by assaging that apprehension a little. First, grafting larvae is not microsurgery. Oh sure, you'll be working with a very small and delicate living thing in a very small and delicate place, but you do so with a tool that's specialized for the task. A friend of mine once took a circuit board that I had made and remarked, I can't imagine how you could possibly work so precisely with such small things. I replied, it's really not difficult when you have the right tools. That is true of any task. Cutting a board in a straight line would be extremely difficult if all you had to work with was a knife or a hatchet. But with a saw, it's a far less daunting task. Of course, it's a lot easier to see that what you're doing when sawing a board, you can probably or you will probably need some form of magnification when grafting larvae. I certainly do, but that doesn't change the fact that all you're going to do is pick up a little worm and then set it down somewhere else. Seriously, that's all it is. If it were up to me, we wouldn't call it grafting because it really isn't. I haven't read it myself, but I've been told that in this book, Scientific Queen Rearing, GM Doolittle uses the far more accurate term of transferring. In fact, I've heard it said that the only term, he only used the term grafting once when regarding a fruit tree. What about you? Would you say that you were grafting your sleeping child when moving him from her playpen or crib? No, you wouldn't. The word grafting implies that you're taking part of a living thing and making a part of a different living thing, but that's not what grafting larva means. In parlance of queen rearing, there is no incision, no sutures, no bleeding, and of course, it would be uh, kitsotakic kin, effort, <laughs> effort to try and change things now. So I will continue to call it grafting, but really it's just picking up a little worm from one place and setting it back down in another. But what if I hurt or kill the larva? Oh that, well let me assure you, there's no if about it. When you hurt larva grafting, and you will, it simply won't develop not into a queen or anything else. This is why most people when first learning to graft end up with a lot of queen cells that just don't develop. 
I tried six times grafting up to 45 larvae each time before I got even one new queen. Two, actually. Of course, most of my errors had nothing to do with grafting, and if I had this book, I wouldn't have taken anywhere near that many tries. But again, I'm digressing. You might graft 45 larvae and find the nurse bees only draw out cells around one or two of them, or maybe they'll start drawing out five or six of them or, and finish only one or two. With practice, your percentages will increase, but meantime, what will the nurse bees do with the larvae you hurt? They'll do the same thing with them that they do with all defective larvae. That's right, they'll eat them. And yes, you're going to outright kill some too, so take a lesson from your bees. It really doesn't matter if you kill some larvae as long as you don't kill the whole colony. And since you're only grafting young larvae of a certain age, ideally 12 to 24 years, hours old, and leaving both the eggs and the older larvae alone, the colony will do just fine. And we'll continue on with this reading a little bit later. Thank you. Happy beekeeping.